When he woke, it was with the sensation of having slept for a long time, but a glance at the old-fashioned clock told him that it was only 20.30. He lay dozing for a while, then the usual deep lunge singing struck up from the yard below. It was only an hopeless fancy. It passed like an opal dye, but a look and a word and the dreams they stirred. They have stolen my art, ah. The driveling song seemed to have kept its popularity. You still heard it all over the place. It had outlived the hate song. Julia woke at the sound, stretched herself luxuriously and got out of bed. I'm hungry, she said. Let's make some more coffee. Damn, the stove's gone out and the water's cold. She picked the stove up and shook it. There's no oil in it. We can get some from old Charrington, I expect. The funny thing is, I made sure it was full. I'm going to put my clothes on, she added. It seems to have gotten colder. Winston also got up and dressed himself. The indefatigable voice sang on. They say that time ends all things. They say you can always forget. But the smiles and the tears cross the years. They twist my art strings yet. As he fastened the belt of his overalls, he strolled across to the window. The sun must have gone down behind the houses. It was not shining into the yard any longer. The flagstones were wet as though they had just been washed and he had the feeling that the sky had been washed too. So fresh and pale was the blue between the chimney pots. Tirelessly the woman marched to and fro, corking and uncorking herself, singing and falling silent and pegging out more diapers and more and yet more. He wondered whether whether she took in washing for a living or merely the slave of 20 or 30 grandchildren. Julia had come across to his side. Together they gazed down with a sort of fascination at the sturdy figure below. As he looked at the woman in her characteristic attitude, her thick arms reaching up for the line, her powerful mare-like buttocks protruded, it struck him for the first time that she was beautiful. It had never before occurred to him that the body of a woman of 50, blown up to monstrous dimensions by childbearing, then hardened, roughened by work, till it was coarse in the grain like an overripe turnip, could be beautiful. But it was so, and after all, he thought, why not? The solid, contourless body, like a block of granite, and the rasping red skin, bore the same relation to the body of a girl as the rose hip to, to the rose. Why should the fruit be held inferior to the flower? She's beautiful, he murmured. She's a metre across the hips, easily, said Julia. That is her style of beauty, said Winston. He held Julia's supple waist, easily encircled by his arm. From the hip to the knee, her flank was against against his. Out of their bodies, no child would ever come. That was one thing they could never do. Only Only by word of mouth, from mind to mind, could they pass on the street. The woman down there had no mind. She had only strong arms, a warm heart and a fertile belly. He wondered how many children she had given birth to. It might easily be 15. She had had her momentary flowering, a year perhaps of wild rose beauty and then she had suddenly swollen like a fertilised fruit and grown hard and red and coarse and then her life had been laundering, scrubbing, scrub, scrubbing, darning, cooking, sweeping, polishing, mending, scrubbing, laundering. First for the children, then for the grandchildren, over 30 unbroken years. 
At the end of it, she was still singing. The mystical reverence that he felt for her was somehow mixed up with the aspects of the pale, cloudless sky stretching away behind the chimney pots into the indeterminable distance. It was curious to think that the sky was the same for everybody, in Eurasia and East Asia as well as here, and the people under the sky were also very much the same. Everywhere over the world, hundreds of thousands of millions of people just like this, people ignorant of one another's existence, held apart by walls of hatred and lies, and yet almost exactly the same, people who had never learned to think, but who were strong up in their hearts and bellies and muscles, the power that would one day overturn the world. If there was hope, it lay in the proles. Without having read to the end of the book, he knew that that must be Goldstein's final message. The future belonged to the proles. And could he be sure that when their time came, the world they constructed would not just be as alien to him? Winston Smith, as as the world of the party. Yes, because at the very least it would be a world of sanity. Where there is equality, there can be sanity. Sooner or later, it would happen. Strength would change into consciousness. The proles were immortal. You could not doubt it when you looked at that valiant figure in the yard. In the end, their awakening would come. And until that happened though it might be a thousand years, they would stay alive against all odds like birds passing on from body to body, the vitality which the party did not share and could not kill. Do you remember, he said, the thrush that sang to us that first day at the edge of the wood? He wasn't singing to us, said Julia. He was singing to please himself. Not even that, he was just singing. The birds sang, the proles sang, the party did not sing. All round the world, in London and New York and Africa and Brazil, and in the mysterious forbidden lands beyond the frontiers, in the streets of Paris and Berlin, in the villages of the endless Russian plain and the bazaars of China and Japan, everywhere stood the same solid, unconquerable figure, made monstrous by work and childbearing, toiling from birth to death and still singing. Out of those mighty loins, a race of conscious beings must one day come. You were the dead. Theirs was the future. But you could share in the future if you kept alive the mind as they kept alive the body and passed on the secret doctrine that two plus two make four. We are the dead, he said. We are the dead, echoed Julia dutifully. You are the dead, said an iron voice behind them. They sprang apart. Winston's entrails seemed to have turned to ice. He could see the whites all round the irises of Julia's eyes. Her face had turned a milky yellow. The smear of rogue that was still on each cheekbone stood out sharply, almost as though unconnected with the skin beneath. You are the dead, repeated the iron voice. It was behind the picture, breathed Julia. It was behind the picture, said the voice. Remain exactly where you are. Make no movement until you are ordered. It was starting. It was starting at last. They could do nothing except stand gazing into one another's eyes. To run for life. To get out of the, ha of the house before it was too late. No such thought occurred to them. Unthinkable to disobey the iron voice from the wall. There was a snap 
as though a catch had been turned back and a crash of breaking glass. The picture had fallen to the floor, uncovering the telescreen behind it. Now they can see us, said Julia. Now we can see you, said the voice. Stand out in the middle of the room. Stand back to back. Clasp your hands behind your heads. Do not touch one another. They were not touching, but it seemed to him that he could feel Julia's body shaking, or perhaps it was merely the shaking of his own. He could not he could he could just stop his teeth from chattering, but his knees were beyond his control. There was a sound of trampling boots below, inside the house and outside. The yard seemed to be full of them. Something was being dragged across the stones. The woman's singing had stopped abruptly. There was a long, rolling clang, as though the wash tub had been flung across the yard, and then a confusion of angry shouts, which ended in a yell of pain. The house is surrounded, said Winston. The house is surrounded, said the voice. He heard Julia snap her teeth together. I suppose we may as well say goodbye, she said. You may as well say goodbye, said the voice. And then another quite different voice, a thin cultivated voice, which Winston had the impression of having heard before, struck in. And by the way, while we are on the subject, here comes a candle to light you to bed. Here comes a chopper to chop off your head. Something crashed onto the bed behind Winston's back. The head of a ladder had been thrust through the open window and had burst in the frame. Someone was climbing through the window. There was a stampede of boots up the stairs. The room was full of solid men in black uniforms with iron shod boots on their feet and truncheons in their hands. Winston was not trembling any longer. Even his eyes, he barely moved. One thing alone mattered to keep still, to keep still and not give them any excuse to hit you. A man with a smooth prize fighter's jowl, in which the mouth was only a slit, paused opposite him, balancing his truncheon meditatively between thumb and forefinger. Winston met his eyes. The feeling of nakedness, with one's hands behind one's head and one's face and body all exposed, was almost unbearable. The man protruded the tip of a white tongue, licked the place where his lips should have had been and then passed on. There was another crash. Someone had picked up the glass paperweight from the table and smashed it to pieces on the hearthstone. The fragment of coral, a tiny crinkle of pink like a sugar rosebud from a cake rolled across the mat. How small, thought Winston, how small it always was. There was a gasp and a thump behind him and he received a violent kick on the ankle which nearly flung him off his balance. One of the men had smashed his fist into Julia's solar plexus, doubling her up like a pocket ruler. She was thrashing about on the floor, fighting for breath. Winston dared not turn his head even a millimetre, but sometimes her livid, gasping face came within, came within the angle of his vision. Even in his terror, it was, it was as though he could feel the pain in his own body, the deadly pain which nevertheless was less urgent than the struggle to get back her breath. He knew what it was like, the terrible agonising pain which was there all the while but could not be suffered yet because before all else it was necessary to be able to breathe. Then two of the men hoisted her up by the knees and shoulders and carried her out of the room like a sack. 
Winston had a glimpse of her face upside down, yellow and contorted, with the eyes shut and still with a smear of rogue on her cheek, and that was the last he saw of her. He stood dead still. No one had hit him yet. Thoughts which came of their own accord but seemed totally uninteresting began to flit through his mind. He wondered whether they had got Mr Charrington. He wondered what they had done to the woman in the yard. He noticed that he badly wanted to urinate and felt a faint surprise because he had done so only two or three hours ago. He noticed that the clock on the mantelpiece said nine, meaning twenty-one, but the light seemed too strong. Would not the light be fading at twenty-one hours on an August evening? He wondered whether, after all, her, he and Julia had mistaken the time, had slept the clock round and thought it was twenty-thirty, when really it was nought-eight-thirty on the following morning. But he did not pursue the thought further. It was not interesting. There was another lighter step in the passage. Mr Charrington came into the room. The demeanour of the black ununiformed men suddenly became more subdued. Something had also changed in Mr Charrington's appearance. His eyes fell on the fragments of the glass paperweight. Pick up those pieces, he said sharply. A man stooped to obey. The cockney accent had disappeared. Winston suddenly realised whose voice it was that he heard a few moments ago on the telescreen. Mr Charrington was still wearing his old velvet jacket, but his hair, which had been almost white, had turned black. Also, he was not wearing his spectacles. He gave Winston a single sharp glance, as though verifying his identity, and then paid no more attention to him. He was still recognisable, but he was not the same person any longer. His body had straightened and seemed to have grown bigger. His face had undergone only tiny changes that had nevertheless worked a complete transformation. The black eyebrows were less bushy. The wrinkles were gone. The whole lines of the face seemed to have altered. Even the nose seemed shorter. It was the alert, cold face of a man of about five and thirty. It occurred to Winston that for the first time in his life he was looking with knowledge at a member of the Thought Police. This is Nick Treadwell and you are listening to Nick Treadwell's Storyville.